You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Hey, good morning, everybody. If I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to be here with you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. As we continue in our series that we've titled God Has a Name, a series where we've been walking through um, the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible, where God just tells us what he's like by declaring his name to us. And so our hope week in and week out in this has been that you would actually um, put yourself in the text of Exodus 34 and you'd realize that when God declares his name to Moses, he's not just speaking to Moses, but he's speaking to you and he's initiating a relationship with you. Uh, that's what you do, right? When you uh, first meet someone, you introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Adam. It's good to be with you. And so um, what God is doing in Exodus 34 is he is inviting you to know him and to experience him and to have a relationship with him, which is um, what I want to talk about this morning is the thing that your heart is beating for. All of us come into this room with a longing. Exodus 34 says your longing has a name and he's pursuing you. So um, with that in mind, let's go to Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and uh, continue to unpack God's name. I just want to remind you too, if you have the Version Bible app um, on your phone, all of today's teachings, uh, the notes from today's teaching is there so you can grab that and use that. Um, Exodus 34, I want to back up to verse 5. And here's what it says, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Slow to anger. We talked about that last week. Here's where we're going today. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together one more time. Um, So, Father, now uh, we do just uh, help us to posture ourselves underneath your word. And we know that you're in the room, you're alive, you're speaking. And so I just pray that, as Tim just prayed, that your word, your truth, your gospel would fall on fertile soil. Just pray that you'd remove any barriers that we've tried to construct to keep you out or keep us away from you or keep us in a position where we can be our own kings and do life on our terms. I pray instead you would just uh, break in this morning. Open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus and to see that he's the one that we're longing for and help us to surrender to him. And I pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory and for our good. Amen. All right. Well, in 1994, 
a young uh, limousine driver from Providence, Rhode Island, was driving down the road on his way to pick up a woman that he had been hired to drive to the airport. Um, he doesn't know who this woman is. He's never seen her before in his life. And so he gets to her house. He knocks. She answers. And it's, it's the, from the first time he lays eyes on her, um, he falls completely head over heels in love with her. Like she totally takes his breath away. He can't speak. He's just captivated by her beauty. And so he pulls himself together. He loads her luggage up in the car. And now they're on the way to the airport. He's nervously making small talk, trying to figure out, you know, who are you? Where are you going? And he, he learns that she's moving indefinitely to Colorado. So he's sad. And he's like, I'm probably never going to see this woman again. And so they get to the airport and he knows it's time for him to say goodbye. He's, un, uh, you know, unloading her luggage. And he's honestly trying not to get emotional. And he says goodbye and he stands there and he watches her walk away. And he's thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to see this woman again. But he notices as she's walking away in the distance that she, for a brief moment, sets down her briefcase and then fails to pick it back up. And she walks away and he loses sight of her. And he's, he's thinking, your briefcase. So he runs and he grabs it and he's running all through the airport. He's trying to find her and, and he can't find her. She's gone. And, and so he looks at this briefcase and he realizes in this moment, this is my chance. Like this is, this is my opportunity. I'm going to travel across the country. I'm going to spend everything I have and I'm going to sacrifice everything. And I'm going to pursue this woman, find her, return her briefcase. And in doing so, prove my love to her and win her over. And so he, he grabs his best friend and they go together on this cross country adventure. And sure enough, he finds her and, and he finds her. And after all this time, he returns her briefcase and, and she's just like, blown away. This is the most profound act of kindness. She's never seen anything like this. And she says, I can't believe you would sacrifice so much and go through all this just for me. And she kisses him on the cheek and she thanks him. And he's like, this is it in his mind. He's like, this is the moment I've been waiting for. I'm going to declare my love to this woman. And, and rather than explain to you what happens next, I actually want to show it to you uh, because believe it or not, we have this moment caught on video. So we'll cue. Here we go. I like you, Mary. Yeah. I like you a lot. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Straight out. Flat out. I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. And we really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> yeah! Okay. Raise your hand if you knew I was describing Dumb and Dumber. Oh, you guys are the best. Okay, awesome. Better than the last service. Um, okay, so yeah, the limousine driver I'm talking about is none other than Lloyd Christmas from the hit comedy uh, Dumb and Dumber. And as you just saw... In this scene, Lloyd finally, you know, tracks down Mary and he gets a chance to say everything he wants to say and tell her how he feels. And sadly, um, she doesn't love him back and she rejects him. And you, it's bad enough. You feel really bad for the guy because he's not picking up on the cues. 
Um, moments after this, um, if the video had continued, he learns that she has a husband, and that's you know the famous line where he says, "Hey, what was all that one in a million talk?" You know, like I thought we had a chance. And so here's the reason why I share that story with you, as dumb as it is. I, I actually think that, that this story, um, it it it's your story. I actually think that this story reaches into um, every single human heart and touches what is our deepest and core longing and fear. And here it is, okay? Um, Your deepest longing, my deepest longing, is that we long to be known and loved, and we long for a love that will love us back. We long for a love that will never leave us and forsake us, but a love that will be faithful and true to us and won't reject us because that is our deepest fear, the, the, the deepest pain that you could possibly experience is to love someone who doesn't love you back. And many of you in this room are going, yeah, I know, because you've experienced that. The greatest pain we can experience is the loss of love, whether it's through death or it's through betrayal or rejection or abandonment. You and I long for a love that promises I'll be faithful to you, I'll remain true to you, I'll be with you to the end. You listen to all the songs that we sing in our culture, all the movies and TV you watch, this is the underlying theme across the board. And so with that in mind, what's so mind-blowing about the God of the Bible, whose name we've been exploring these last few weeks, is that when He reveals Himself to us, in Exodus 34, 6, He says that He is a God whose name is steadfast love and faithfulness. And so right out of the gates, here's, I want to tell you, here's what God is doing in Exodus 34, 6. He is speaking directly to your heart and directly to your core longing and your core fear. And he's saying, listen, I see you and I know you and I understand this longing you have for a love that will never leave. I understand your fear of abandonment. I understand how your heart works because I'm the one who designed it and I'm the one for whom it was designed. And so God stands here in this passage and he says, I'm the love you're longing for. It's my name. It's who I am. I'm the love that created you. I'm the love that you spend all your energy searching for. I'm the love that will never leave you and forsake you. It's just who I am, God says. And so I think, you know, the question we have to all wrestle with, myself included this morning, when you come to this text is, do I really believe that this is true about God? Like, is this how I really see him? When I think about God, do I see him as a God who sees me and a God who loves me and a God who is faithful and true to me? Um, That's important because, you know, as we've said the last few weeks, um, what you think about God, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because what you think about God shapes your entire life. If you see God as cold and careless and distant, then you're going to live your life feeling insecure and at the end of the day, you're going to feel alone. If you see God as mean and angry and just sort of sitting back and waiting on you to fail so he can zap you, then you're going to live your life in performance anxiety and with a fear of judgment and with a lot of shame because no matter what you do, you're never going to feel good enough. But when you come to know God as love in Christ, when you come to know God as a God who is steadfast love and faithfulness, that changes everything, changes everything. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So... In light of that, um, here's what I want to do. It's really simple. I want to first unpack these two Hebrew words, steadfast love and faithfulness, and, and just come to an understanding about what they mean. But then secondly, I want us to look at a story in the Old, Old Testament that illustrates um, and helps us experience what these words mean. Does that make sense? Okay, Here, let's do this then. Look, look down at Exodus 34, 6. 
Um, and let's start with this phrase, steadfast love. Just keep your eyeballs on that phrase for a second. Underline that phrase. What you notice there is that in English, um, uh, steadfast love is two words, but in Hebrew it's actually one word, and it's this word hesed, or chesed, if you want to you know, spit on the person in front of you. And so the thing about this word is it's actually kind of hard to translate and capture what it means in English, which is why translations are all over the map, as you can see there on the screen. Um, sometimes you see this word translated goodness or loving kindness or unfailing love or loving devotion or faithful love. And so the question is, which is it? And the answer is yes. Um, this, this word means all of those things. All of those things are wrapped up in this term hesed. In fact, Hebrew scholar Daniel Block says it like this. The Hebrew word hesed cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes about God. So keep that quote on the screen for a second. Notice, first of all, he says it's a covenant term. Hold that in your mind. We'll come back to that in just a moment. For now, I just want you to see the power and the beauty in this tiny little word. He says, Block says, every, every positive attribute about God, every, every good thing you could say about God, His grace, His mercy, His kindness, His patience, His compassion, His justice, all that stuff, all that is wrapped up and being communicated by this one word, hesed. And God says, yeah, I'm overflowing in it. That's what I want you to know about me. In fact, this is the only quality that you see repeated in Exodus 34. You see God mention his hesed again in verse 7, which is God's way of really driving home and saying, the, the, the best and most truest thing about me is that I am hesed. And he says, when you think about me, the image I want you to hold in your heart and in your mind is this image of a fountain. Look at that word, abounding. He says, I'm, I'm abounding, I'm overflowing, I'm bursting at the seams with hesed, with steadfast love. And with faithfulness, he says. So look at verse 6. He, he says, I want you to see that I'm abounding in hesed, and I'm abounding in faithfulness. And that word faithfulness in verse 6 is the Hebrew word emet. Um, it literally means truth or fidelity. As an adjective, it can be translated trustworthy, true, consistent, reliable. Um, interestingly, in the New Testament, this is where we get the word amen. Um, it comes from the Hebrew emet, amen, emet, sounds kind of similar. And so we say amen when we agree uh, with something or we affirm something. We had Randy Rogers in the last service to help us, so you guys are going to have to pick up the slack. But if I were to say to you, God is love, you would say amen. Amen right? I believe it. I affirm it. It's true. If I were to say to you, the Arkansas Razorbacks were absolutely horrifically terrible this year, you would say, amen. amen. God help us have mercy. It's true. Um, and it just is. And we played better yesterday, but we've got a long way to go. Um, and I do too. Uh, but that's aside from that, we're not talking about me right now. So to come back to the, to come back to the text, listen, when God says, I'm, I'm like this fountain abounding in emet and abounding in faithfulness, what he's saying is, I'm trustworthy. You, you really can lay everything on me and trust that I, I can hold you up. I can hold your life together. You can rely on me. You can depend on me. He's saying, I have integrity. I always do what I say and say what I do. In other words, God is not fickle or flaky. He's faithful. All day long, every day, always been that way. It's who he is. It's his name. 
And it's really hard for us even to wrap our mind around this kind of faithfulness because it's not who we are. Um, in, in fact, faithfulness as a virtue is something that we're losing in our culture. I read an article last week um, that talked about how commitment is now essentially a bad word in our culture and how the idea of commitment is now among the top phobias uh, among Americans, like right up there with like public speaking and death and those kind of things. We just don't want to be tied down or obligated to anybody or anything, so we hate commitment. And so this article talks about how the average stay in a marriage now is about eight years, and the average stay in a job is about four years, and those numbers, we're watching those numbers drop every year. And so one pastor uh, says this about our culture. He says, uh, quote, faithfulness has become like disco. It used to be cool, and a few people still do it, but for the most part, it's a thing of the past. The truth is, like, we just want shortcuts, and we want instant gratification, and if we're not happy, or when life gets hard and things are no longer easy, many of us will just bail, right? I'll find a new job, I'll find a new MC, I'll find a new church, I'll find a new spouse, I'll find a new God. And, and that's just kind of, that's something that lives in us. The truth is, apart from God's grace, all of us have fickle and, and flaky hearts. And what you have to realize when you come to Exodus 34, as hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around this kind of commitment, it's just, that's not who God is. He's faithful. He's true. He's consistent. He never breaks his promises. And that's his name. And so when you zoom out of this and you take hesed and you take emet, so, so you put these two words together and you see them occur together all over the scriptures, um, it says something really powerful about God's love. And Gary Brashears, this one scholar, says it like this. I'll put this on the screen. He says, Together, Hesed and Emmet describe the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God in relationship with his people. Or my all-time favorite rendering is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. If, even if you don't have kids, you should get the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, we read it every night f- with our kids, but it's as much for us as it is for them because we get a lot, as much out of it. It's amazing. And here's the way they translate these two words together. Um, it means that when you, these two words together means that God and Jesus, God loves you with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And so here's what that means about God's love. It means that when God sees you, okay, he doesn't just have warm and fuzzy feelings about you. He does, but it's so much more than that. Like when we think about love, we think of warm and fuzzy feelings, or we think of love as something you just sort of passively fall into and you passively fall back out of. But, but that's actually not love, and it's certainly not the way God loves. Hesed and Emmet together are saying that, that God's love is a committed love. It's a loyal love. You can't, you can't get away from it. It's, 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 it never stops pursuing you. He's never, ever going to leave you or forsake you. He's faithful to the bitter end no matter what it costs him. That's what Exodus 34, 6 is saying to you. Now, uh, some of you hear that and you think, yeah, but could that really be true about God? Could he really 
first of all, does he really see me? Does he even know my name? I mean, or it's cool that I know his name, but does he even know my name? Do, does he know me? And could he really love me and stay committed to me if he knew me? You mean to tell me that if I trust in Jesus and I give my heart to him, um, that he's not just going to kick me to the curb whenever I fail? He's not just going to pack his bags and leave because that's what everybody else does? And I love Paul's answer to that question. He says to Timothy um, in his letter to Timothy, if we are faithless, and it could be translated when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For let's read the last line together. If we are faithless, he remains faithful altogether now, for he cannot deny himself. Right? Paul says, it's just, it is who he is. I mean, he, he's going to be faithful. He, love and faithfulness is his nature, it's his character, it's his name. He can't deny that about himself. And maybe some of you are still going, well, that's awesome. But if God is faithful, then why is my life so hard? Has anybody else ever asked that question or am I the only one? Like, sometimes we look at God's promises to be faithful to us and we look at our life circumstances and they don't seem to line up. And so we, we're left with all these yeah, but questions, right? So God is faithful. Yeah, but my childhood was horrific. Uh, God is faithful. Yeah, but I have this chronic illness and I'm in so much pain. God is faithful. Yeah, but I lost my job. God is faithful. Yeah, but I can't get myself out of this financial hole. God is faithful. Yeah, but my marriage is falling apart. God is faithful. Yeah, but my child is sick. God is faithful. Yeah, but I can't kick this addiction. God is faithful. Yeah, but I've buried way too many people that I love. And if that's you this morning, I just want to say, first of all, I understand these kind of thoughts. These are regular to me. God understands these kind of thoughts. And this is where we have to go back to what um, Daniel Block was talking about earlier. We have to go back to the idea of a covenant. Because listen to me, God, he never promises his people a comfortable, easy life. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite. He says in John 16, 33, um, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And just to stop and pause on this for just a second, this is in a context where for three chapters from John 14 to John 16, Jesus has been saying, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to suffer, you're going to have all this trouble, but take heart because I'll be with you, he says. Jesus says, like, look, I'm not going to abandon you as an orphan. I know your heart's core longing and desire. I know your fear of abandonment. I'm not going to leave you alone. I will promise to be with you in all of life's ups and downs, your darkest moments, your brightest moments. I'm going to send you my helper, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit, I and the Father are going to make our home with you. And so what Jesus promises is, I'm going to be with you always. That's a covenant, right? That's the essence of a covenant. You think about, if you're married in this room, you think about the covenant vows you made with your, prom, your, your, your spouse. It's, it's a promise to love and stay faithful to them no matter what life throws at you. Like we usually say things like, we don't stand up there and promise each other a comfortable life. We stand up there and we say, look, whenever like the stuff hits the fan, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going anywhere. You're not getting rid of me. When you fail me and you break my heart, I'm going to stay with you. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I'm going to be loyal to you. And we say things like, I, Adam, take you carry to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, rich or poor, in sickness and in health until death do us part. What you're promising in a covenant is your loving, faithful presence to the other. 
And this is what God is promising his people. Look, in your darkest moments, I'll be there and I'll hold you. I'm always holding you. I'll I'll enter into the mess with you and I'll hold you. And I promise that my presence will be enough for you. When you fail, when you blow it big time, when you're unfaithful, I'll be there. And I'll hold you. And I'll be faithful to you. This is the covenant God makes with his people. Hesed and Emmet are covenant terms, getting at God's covenant loyalty to you in Christ. And the moment you realize this, you realize something else. All throughout the scripture, God's relationship with his people is described as a marriage relationship. It's a marriage. That's what it is. And we don't have time to explore all this, but Isaiah 54, uh, 5 says, For your creator is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. I'm your husband. The one who created you is your husband, God says. The one who redeems you is your husband. You see this all through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel 16. The image of God as a faithful, pursuing husband is the driving image of the entire biblical story. And so in light of that, here's what I want to do, okay, with the rest of our time. I've explained to you logically what Hesed and Emmet mean. Um, but I want to look at a place where God illustrates this for us because some truths are just hard to explain adequately with logic. And God's love is one of those things. Some things need to be sensed and felt, which is why God doesn't just give us his covenant love and propositions, but he gives it to us in the form of stories. And I want to look at one of those stories. So turn with me um, to the book of Hosea. And uh, if you want to just follow along on the screen, you can as well. Um, but if you want to turn there, Hosea is in the Old Testament. It's on page 751 in my Bible, if that helps. No shame if you need to look at the table of contents. Um, Hosea. While you're turning there, let me just set up the context for you. Hosea is a prophet, which means he's been called by God to represent him and to speak to the people of Israel on his behalf. And right away in the first couple verses of the book, we see God give Hosea one of the most bizarre, unusual assignments that he gives any other prophet. And here's what he says to Hosea, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We'll put this on the screen, and I want to warn you, this is some strong language. Uh, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I would underline that phrase. So Hosea went and he took Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Here's what's going on. God calls Hosea to go and marry a woman who is essentially described by Hebrew scholars as a sex addict. And her name's Gomer. And what you see is that Hosea doesn't just like begrudgingly go through the formalities, but he actually gives his heart to this woman and he loves her. And immediately she begins to be unfaithful to him. She bears three children, um, but at least the last one is not his. And we know that because the last one he names Lo-Ami, which means not mine. So uh, he's like, that's not mine. Uh, <clears throat> you got somebody else's nose, kid. Uh, it ain't mine. And so it's a bad situation. It's a bad situation. And it gets worse. She eventually leaves him and the kids, and she goes to live with another man. And so we read this in chapter 2. This is, a, this is a summary of verses 5 through 8. We'll put it on the screen. It says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. But check this out. What she didn't even know, Hosea said, is that it was I who gave her those things. The wine, the oil, the grain. I lavished her with silver and gold and she had no idea it was me. This is a really, really dark time in their marriage. Evidently, Gomer leaves and goes and lives with a man who's abusive to her. And scholars say, obviously not providing for her and meeting her basic necessities. Hosea can't get her to come back home. And so right here in chapter 2, verse 8, what it's hinting at is that one day, um, Hosea, and you've got to use your imagination here, goes to this guy's house knocks on the door, and the guy answers, and Hosea says, is Gomer here? And the guy says, well, who wants to know? Who are you? And Hosea says, well, I'm her husband. This guy thinks he's going to get punched, right? And then Hosea does something that's just unthinkable. He takes out his wallet, and he says, look, I know you don't care about her. You don't give a rip about her. You don't love her, but I know she's here. For whatever reason, she won't leave you. I do love her, though, and I don't want her to starve. So will you take this and buy her something to eat? And get her something nice, maybe silver and gold, which is just crazy. And if you're a husband, you kind of understand that. I mean, for better or for worse, husbands have this thing in them that like, you want to give your wife the world, you want to buy her things, give her stuff, sweep her off her feet. And so Gomer says, Hosea says, here, take this. And so obviously he lavishes her with silver and gold and she has food to eat. And Hosea is behind the scenes saying, yeah, she has no idea that I'm the one who provided those things for her. And in this case, the guy just closes the door, takes the money, and laughs at Hosea the way we would laugh at Lloyd Christmas. Say, like, what a fool. And if you feel that way, by the way, you're, the story's doing what it's supposed to do. Because as you're the reader uh, reading this story, you kind of find yourself going, like, what an idiot. Like, what? why would Hosea do this? Why would he continue to pursue this woman after all she's done to him? She's cheated on him time and time again. She's... She's unfaithful. She's totally forgotten about him. She's not grateful. She's abandoned him completely. Why does he continue to go after her? But this doesn't stop Hosea. Even as things continue to get worse, by the way, because by the time you get to chapter 3, it's really bad. So in chapter 3, we learn that this man Gomer was with has evidently sold her into the sex slave trade. And we find her up for sale. She's being auctioned off in the public market. And God says to Hosea, go and buy her back. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me, right? Yeah, go and buy her back. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let's put it on the screen. He says, go again. And I would circle that word again. Just think about all that's loaded in that term again. All that Hosea's done, his faithful pursuit, God says, yeah, keep going. Keep going after her. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Underline this next phrase. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, which were these things offered to idols. More on that in a moment. So Hosea says, I went and I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. That would be nine bushels of barley, which together would be 30 pieces of 30, 30 shekels, which is the common price of a slave in that day and age. So he buys her. This is a really terrible situation for Hosea, and it's a really terrible and unsafe situation for Gomer. Um, 
I, just want, I, want, I want you to get inside this moment from, for a little, little bit. I mean, we know based on historical records of this kind of thing how this would have went down. Um, she would have been stripped naked, standing in public markets, stripped naked so that the bidders could see the merchandise and take a look at what they're buying and getting. And if you're Gomer, you can just imagine, like, this is the depth of degradation. Um, she's at the very bottom of her life. She's never felt more helpless, more hopeless, more shame than she feels. She's probably got her eyes closed. It's the last, like, form of self-protection she has. And as she's standing there, she's listening to all these men bid after her and try to buy her. And, you know, somebody says 10 shekels. Another person says 12 shekels. Another person calls out and says 13. And in the midst of all the bidding, she begins to, to, to recognize, like, she hears all of a sudden a familiar voice. And she realizes that this is, this is my husband's voice that I hear calling out from the crowd. And so someone says uh, 14 shekels, and Hosea says 15 shekels. And someone says, you know, 15 shekels and five bushes of barley. And Hosea says 15 shekels and nine bushes of barley. And the guy says sold to Hosea. And he buys her back for the equivalent of 30 shekels. And this is such a dramatic moment. Like you can imagine if you're Gomer, what you might be thinking like this, he is crazy. What is he thinking? Like after everything I've done to him, how could he possibly seeing me like this? How could he possibly love me and want me? Or worse, she thinks, I know what he's doing. This is revenge. He's going to buy me as a slave and he's going to punish me. But what does he do? Well, chapter 3, verse 3 tells us what he does. Right after he buys her, he walks up and he takes her off of this podium and he buys her and he says to her, quote, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore anymore and belong to another man. And so I also will be to you. You see what he's doing? He comes back to the covenant they've made. He's, that's what he's doing in verse 3. He's renewing his marriage vows. He's restoring her identity as his bride. He's saying, you're not a slave. You're my wife. And you belong to no other man. You're not for sharing, Gomer, and I'm not for sharing. You're mine, and I'm yours. It's beautiful. How does the story end? Well, we don't know. So how's that for a good story? It just ends. It transitions. But what we do know is the point of the story. And the whole point of Hosea, in case you still can't see it, is this. Hosea's relationship with Gomer serves as a picture of God's relationship with his people. So God says, this is an image that I want to use to show you what my heart is like and how my heart works and what my relationship with human beings is like. And so he grabs Hosea and says, you're my prophet. Here's my assignment. Here's what we're going to do. You and I, Hosea, are going to both marry a bride. and We're going to give our hearts, our lives, our very presence to them. And time and time again, they're going to reject us. And they're going to break our hearts and throw themselves into the arms of other lovers. But you and I are going to keep loving, keep pursuing, keep remaining loyal, keep remaining faithful. And we're going to spend everything we have to buy them back and bring them back into relationship with ourselves. And so God says, Hosea, like, I know it's a lot to ask, 
but I want you to do this because I, I, I want you to be a living, breathing illustration of how my heart works and what my love is like. That's the point of Hosea. And it's all of a sudden, at that point, you begin to realize like, holy smokes, that must mean that I'm Gomer in the story. And you'd be right. See, it's easy for us to read this story and kind of stand over Gomer. At least it is for me. I'll just be honest with you. It's easy for me to kind of stand over her and be like, gosh, she's so faithless. No commitment, no loyalty at all in her. Like, she's, she's broken his heart time and time again. It's easy for me kind of to look down on her and despise her. But then all of a sudden, God flips it around on me and says, like, if that's you, then here's what I want you to do, Adam. I want you to realize that when you look at Gomer, you're actually looking into a mirror. Because apart from God's grace, we're all Gomer. And so one scholar says it like this. He says, we'll put this on the screen. Powerful quote. Again, warning, some strong language here. We are Gomer. We are spiritual adulterers. We want to have it our way. And we're, we are willing to reject God's covenantal faithfulness for fleeting one-night stands with idols. You know what idols are? Idols, you see this all throughout the scriptures. Idols are anything that you trust and give your heart to and give yourself to that aren't God. Anything that you, put, uh, that you look to to be for you what only God can be for you. Anything you put ahead of God, that's, that's an idol. Whether it's your children, your political view, your religious performance, your image, your success. Like, I don't know. Anything that you give your heart to and say, I'm going to find my security, my affirmation, and my hope in that thing. God says it's an idol, and it's actually the equivalent of adultery. It's really strong language. It resonates deeply with, within us, and it's supposed to. And God says, here's what he wants you to see in Hosea. He's saying that, when you pursue and, you, and you, you give yourself to these other things and you build your life on these things that aren't God, you're doing the same thing with your soul that Gomer is doing with her body. And you're putting yourself in the arms of false lovers that can't hold you and that don't care about you and that are waiting to abandon you and leave you and forsake you. God is saying to us through, through this book, through this story, that... Your idols can never save you. They only enslave you. And they get you addicted like Gomer. Because here's how they work. They bait you with promises of hope and affirmation and joy and security. And they, 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 when, you, when you take the bait and you give yourself to them, they really do scratch within this little itch, this longing for a love that will never leave. They, they scratch that just enough and then they turn it on you and they abandon you. And they don't work for you, they make you work for them. you got to keep coming back. And, and they leave you more hurt, more in more despair, more broken, more empty, and more hungry and thirsty for what it is that your heart was really longing for all along, which is Jesus. And let's be honest, that's where this is all going. You look at Exodus 34, you look at Hosea, it's all leading you, it's all trying to point you to Jesus. Because the Bible, the whole Bible is a love story that leads to Jesus. It's the story about God's wild pursuit, where he'll stop at nothing to pursue his wayward bride. And you go back to the very moment sin enters the story. 
And we're standing there naked and ashamed. And, and in that very moment, God moves toward us with compassion. He, begin, he begins his pursuit of human beings to clothe us and bring us back into covenant relationship with himself. This is the whole story. And so you fast forward, you get to Ephesians 5, and Jesus hits the scene and says, I'm the bridegroom. Like, I'm the true and better husband. And Jesus says, I left heaven and I traveled, you know, all the way across the country, proverbially speaking, to pursue you and, and spend everything on you. And I, he says, I, I love you and I gave myself up for you. And then he alludes to this beautiful marriage feast that we're going to see that Revelation 21 and 22 talks about. But he alludes to and he says, on the last day, I'm going to take my bride and I'm going to present her to myself holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle. And it's just this powerful image of a, of a restored bride wearing this pure white wedding dress. And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's what I came to do. And so in other words, here's the good news of the gospel that Hosea is trying to point you. Exodus 34 is pointing you to. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus comes and, and, and as the faithful husband, and he lives a life of perfect faithfulness in our place. And then he takes the punishment we deserve for our unfaithfulness. And like Gomer, he's sold into captivity for 30 pieces of silver by Judas Iscariot. Like Gomer, he's abused and stripped and made a public spectacle on the cross. And there he pays the ultimate price to buy you back so that he can cover up your shame and clothe you with his righteousness and restore your identity. It's the greatest news on the planet. And so, in light of that, here's how I want to close. Okay, we're almost done. This, this, I'm going to land it right here. Two questions. I think in, in light of God's love, covenant love, we need to stop and ask two questions. Okay, and here's the first. Question number one. How would your life be different if you embraced this good news? How would your life be different if you truly believe that God loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love? And we could go on and on and on about this. We could spend hours talking about this because the reality is you can't embrace this truth without being transformed completely from the inside out. It's like, it's like getting hit by a truck. If I walk out here in the street and I get hit by a truck, I'm going to look different right? Like there's going to be some things about me that are changed, that are deconstructed. I'm going to look different. And, and what I want you to see is there's no way to get hit by a force like this and not be changed. And ultimately God's covenant love for you gives you a brand new identity. You want to know the good news in Jesus? We're not gomers anymore. Like God doesn't, he doesn't look at you and see you as this is this ashamed person, this enslaved person. He looks at you and says, that's my bride. I love you. He restores your dignity, your humanity, your sense of self-worth because you belong to him. You belong to me, he says. That's your value. And, and it, you realize you don't have to live your life in guilt, fear, and shame anymore. And some of you in this room, I get it because I've got this, this lives in me. Some of you go, yeah, but still, but still. There's a part of me that says, but, but you don't know what I've done. Like, you don't really know me. There's no way if he truly knew me, if you truly knew me, you wouldn't say this. There's no way he could really love me. And, and here's, what, here's what God wants to show you through the story of, of Gomer. He does see you. And he sees you at his worst. And, and in that place, he gives his best. God sees you. And, and, and what you have to realize is that the places in your story and the places in your soul that you hate the most are the places where God loves you the most. The places in you right now where you're the most ashamed are the places right now where Jesus is moving close to you 
in mercy and compassion and grace. He's, he, he actually says, I, no, I do see you. Don't, you. No, you don't understand. I do see you. And the cross is proof that I do love you. It changes everything. It gives you, like, it gives you this identity. And I, by the way, I'm not here yet. I'm not here yet. But it gives you this identity that is so secure and, and, and so stable that it's not dependent on circumstances. Like you have this joy and this contentment that nothing can take from you, which means that, you know, my sense of self is not made or broken based on success or failure, based on, you know, criticism or praise, based on what you think about me or I think about me. But it just means that like, no, I'm, I'm God's beloved bride and I'm his child. And that's, that's who I am. I'm telling you, when you embrace this, it changes everything. It changes everything. The question is, the second question is, have you embraced it? The second question is, have you embraced God's love for you this morning? And if not, what are the barriers that keep you from embracing his love for you? And for some of you in the room, what's keeping you from doing this is that you, you don't know if you can trust his love because you've been hurt. You're like, yeah, well, I've, I've opened my heart and given it to others, and I know what happens when you do that. And so it's really hard for me just to let go of my defense mechanisms and the things I've built my life on and just trust that God's going to take care of me because nobody's ever taken care of me. Let me just tell you, man, if that's you, I, I understand that too, and God understands that. And I can't put this in your heart. I can't make you believe this, but my prayer for you, our prayer as pastors is that you would, you would see right now Jesus as the faithful husband who stands and fights for you. And you would let go and lay your life on him and trust that his covenant promises, I will hold you. I can hold you. I'm already holding you. You're squirming in my embrace. I promise you, I can be enough for you. And you would let go and you would trust him. And then for some of you in this room, what's keeping you from embracing God's love is, is what we've already said. Man, you're putting your trust in lesser things. It's like Gomer. You're, you're, you're looking for love in all the wrong places, right? And if that's you, and really this is the invitation for all of us in the room, everybody in this room, what Jesus wants to open the eyes of your heart and invite you to see what Gomer couldn't see. He's the one been providing for you all along. Like you can run from him, but just realize the oxygen that you're gulping while you're running, that's his oxygen. He gives you your daily bread. He's meeting your needs. He's keeping you alive. He's sustaining your life. He's behind the scenes going, I'm the one your heart is beating for. And he's pursuing you. And so if you're in this room and you've been running for Jesus for 30 years, you've been running for Jesus for the last 30 minutes, you've been hearing me talk, then my, what, what I want, the invitation is just to stop and surrender. Today's the day you stop and surrender. And I'm, I'm telling you, man, you, you can run fast, but he's faster. And I promise you that he's already ran ahead of you and he's waiting on you. So whenever you do hit the wall, he's going to be there. He's running alongside you. He's running behind you. He's pursuing you because that is his name. It's his name. And so the invitation for all of us this morning is to repent. And if you're a Christian, is to repent and, and maybe some of you need to renew your covenant with Jesus this morning. Just to renew your vows to trust in him and to surrender whatever it is that he's asking you to give up or die to so that you can live. And that's how I want us to come to this table. You know, every week we, we move to this table. We have two stations here on the front, two in the back. And we celebrate what's called communion. And what this is, is this represents the price Jesus paid to buy back his bride. 
His body was broken. His blood was shed so that you could be forgiven and reconciled in relationship to God. And I love the way Tim Keller describes communion. He describes it as a renewal of your marriage vows to Jesus. And so you taking communion this morning is a way of saying, I blank take you, Jesus, to be my wedded Savior and Lord. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to give you my all as you have given your all for me. And I promise to give myself to you as you have given yourself to me for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and not even death can part us because of what you've done for me. And so this morning, the invitation is stop running and surrender. And we want to give everybody a chance to come in repentance and renew your covenant, or maybe for the first time, pledge your trust in Jesus. So I want to invite the band to come forward, and I want to invite you to stand. But it's easy to get distracted in this moment. I want you to keep your hearts engaged with what God is saying and doing. And I just want to return to that second question. Have you embraced the love of God for you in Christ? If not, what are the barriers keeping you from trusting in his love for you? And if you're in this room and you're a Christian, you've trusted in Christ, we invite you to come and celebrate this meal. If you're in this room and you haven't, there's hardly anything that's off limits to you in our church. But We would say that um, we would ask that you would stay in your seat and not participate in this meal because there's no magic in this. I think this bread and this juice come from, from Walmart. Like this, The whole point of this is what it represents, that my trust and my hope is in Jesus. And if you're in this room and you say, today's the day I want to do that, I want to surrender everything to Jesus, I want to lay my life on him and trust in him, um, or you want to just wrestle through that and talk through that, man, I would, I'll be available after the service. Jared, Luke, Chuck, our pastors, we would love to talk with you and pray with you and process that with you. So let me pray. And then uh, our communion service will come and we'll renew our covenant with Jesus together. Now, so Father, thanks for pursuing us, um, for being faithful when I'm faithless, for seeing the core of who I am and still breaking the bank to purchase me and spend everything you have for me. Sometimes it's hard for me to believe that. And I just, pray, God, that you would renew my trust in that good news. And do the same for each of us today. I pray, God, that those in this room who are resisting you would stop. I pray, God, those in this room who just need to surrender certain things would do so. And I pray as we started again, that in this moment, you would just have your way with us. I pray these things in Christ's name.